0: When it comes to globalization, when it comes to automation, when it comes to climate change, of course, every country's problems are not the same. But there are some issues that are truly
1: multilateral. When the evergreen ship lodged in the Suez Canal, it took over the internet. Headlines about the impact on global trade were just as prevalent as memes of the tiny excavator attempting to dig it out. The world watched as the massive cargo ship, one of the largest in the world, remained stuck for over a week, blocking all passage through the crucial waterway. According to a BBC report, billions of dollars worth of goods were delayed, the price of crude oil dropped, and consumer prices rose. How could one ship cause so much chaos? In a word, globalization. I'm your host, Carly Sheridan, and in today's episode of Women in Economics, we'll be looking at the state of multilateralism and the role of the IMF. Multilateralism at its core is an alliance of multiple countries working to pursue one common goal. Organizations like the United Nations, the World Health Organization, and of course the IMF all fall into this category. The International Monetary Fund, or the IMF as I've been referring to it, was created in 1945 to foster stability and cooperation in the international monetary system. Governed by 189 countries, the IMF works to facilitate international trade, increase employment numbers, and reduce poverty. Essentially, the IMF works to improve the overall economies of its member countries. And while the evergreen may not have direct ties to the IMF's operations, it does serve as a reminder of how interconnected we all are, for better or for worse. Economist Gita Gopinath is the IMF's first female chief economist. A huge part of her work there has been rooted in the challenges of achieving sustainable growth and promoting that multilateral cooperation. With expertise in global trade, exchange rates, and capital flows, there is quite literally no one better suited to have this conversation with. To get us started, can you tell us in your own words what the IMF does? The IMF is about
0: ensuring economic prosperity and financial stability in the world. So there are three broad areas that the IMF works in. One is in terms of providing technical assistance to countries, in terms of building good institutions, like the fiscal institutions or central banks. A second piece of what they do is surveillance, which is monitoring economies and seeing how they are doing. And then, of course, the one area that we're very well known for is providing financial assistance. So when countries are in a crises, the IMF usually goes in there
1: and tries to help them get past this hurdle and to stabilize and to grow. When Gopinath first started at the IMF, The biggest issue of the day was trade-in tariffs, predominantly because of the U.S.-China trade tensions. Today, it's the economic policies and financial assistance to address COVID-19 and what the long-term effects of this pandemic may be. Just as the global economy evolves and adapts to important trends, so do the policy recommendations and areas of research at the IMF. But when looking at the economy from a global perspective, there is one topic that remains constantly top of mind—money and this is a topic Gopinath has long since researched. Before landing the prestigious title at the IMF, she was a professor at Harvard University researching the dominance of the U.S. dollar in global trade and finance. If you look at
0: governments in different parts of the world, mostly central banks, they hold some of their savings in foreign currencies, which tends to be the dollar, the euro, the yen. And if you look at what countries save in 60% of foreign reserves are the dollar, 20% is the euro. So the dollar has a very big share in a country's foreign currency saving, right? But if you look at the question of the dominance of a currency, it goes past just how countries save. It also has to do with how they trade with the rest of the world. It has to do with how their firms and their households, what currencies do they save in, what currencies do they borrow in. The dollar is
1: dominant in all of these different areas. The dollar is firmly rooted as a dominant currency. But why? And who was dethroned for this to happen? It's always been the case,
0: and as far as recorded history can go back there, it has tended to be a dominant currency. It used to be the British pound, and then it got taken over by the dollar. Now, there were a whole bunch of factors that mattered for it. So the wars led to a lot of disruption, reduced the wealth of Britain. Well at the same time, the U.S. was doing very well. The U.S. had become a major economic power, it had become a major trade power. The U Federal Reserve System was put in place around 1913. All of this helped the dollar come in as
1: a new substitute for uh, the British pound. So being the dominant currency is why you'll often see prices in U.S. dollars, even when the U.S. isn't involved in the trade. But why do exporters do this? And what does it mean for a competitive global market? So if I'm a firm and I'm in Mexico, and I'm deciding
0: to sell to, say, Japan, usually what I'm exporting to Japan, some part of it was also imported from somewhere else. So what happens is that if what I'm importing is already priced in dollars, it makes sense for me then when I'm selling forward to also price in dollars. So there are these network effects That because everybody selling to you is pricing in dollars, you also end up then pricing in dollars. So that's one channel. The second channel is in terms of a competition effect, which is that, say, I'm a Mexican exporter and I'm selling to the US. Uh, China is also selling to the US in that exact same category. So we're competitors. I know that China prices in dollars and the dollar price doesn't change that much. Now, if I price in Mexican pesos and every time the exchange rate moves around, the dollar price moves around one to one. And I don't want that to happen. So what I'm going to do to keep my price relatively stable relative to my competitors, I will also price in dollars. And the third factor is that because of this heavy dollar invoicing in international trade, we've ended up in an environment where funding in dollars or borrowing in dollars can be quite cheap. As a firm, if you are able to show that you have these dollar revenues you're going to earn, then you can use that to be able to borrow more cheaply in dollar terms. And so all of these feed into each
1: other. In her work, Gopinath challenged traditional thinking and economic modeling by outlining that because most trade is invoiced in a few dominant currencies, a weakened currency will not carry economic benefits like increased exports. Let's take a three countries,
0: let's say trade between India and the US and Mexico. It was assumed that if now I am India and I price everything in rupee terms, then suppose that my currency depreciates, it's going to make the prices in dollars cheaper, and it's going to make the prices in pesos cheaper. And so then that's going to lead to an increase in exports out of India to both these countries. But if on the other hand, we are in the dollar pricing world, where India is pricing in dollars When the new rupee depreciates, there's no effect on the quantity that's demanded for Indian goods. And so you should not see an increase in exports. And that's what you see in the data. You don't really see a big export boost that comes immediately after your currency weakens
1: when you are in this world of dominant currency pricing. This may feel abstract, but humans operate in a very similar fashion. I'll use myself as an example here. As a Canadian planning a trip to Europe, it's reasonable to assume that I would benefit from a strong Canadian dollar and a weakened euro before and during my trip, because I, Carly, am operating from the stance of an individual and looking to accrue personal short-term benefits. But I'd be missing the larger picture here. A weakened euro is indicative of a drag on the European economy, which can mean potential job losses and increased public debt. My trip may feel cheaper, but in a globalized world, it's only a matter of time before the economic woes from across the ocean make their way back to Canada as well. But as with anything in life, there are two sides here. For the emerging markets that price in dominant currencies, the direct policy implications can be that they are exposed to those international woes that they may not have otherwise been subjected to.
0: They tend to rely more on foreign currencies and the dollar. Uh, which means that they can be exposed to events of the kind where you have a firm that's borrowed in dollar terms, but their revenues are not in dollar terms. And then when their currency weakens sharply relative to the dollar, that makes them and get into financial stress right? because they have to repay these dollar uh, borrowings that they've done, but they don't have the revenues for it. It's not just firms, it's even governments who end up doing that. And one of the main reasons why the IMF is usually called to assist a country or to help with financial assistance, is because they have a lot of foreign currency borrowing, dollar borrowing, and they have a hard time repaying that because their export earnings are not sufficient to pay back. So would international trade benefit from a more balanced system? It's always been the case that there tends to be a currency that has a very large share in the world. But I think a good argument can be made for why the international monetary system would really benefit from having a little more of a multipolar world without the the dollar being so dominant, but having more role for other currencies, like say the euro and maybe the renminbi. I think it would help with uh, insurance for countries. It will help with how economies get impacted when their currencies move relative to the dollar. How do we get more currencies to have a bigger role? The euro is a credible option. They have made progress in recent years in improving the euro area architecture. If much more is done on that front, if there's a much more stronger banking union, a capital markets union, a central fiscal capacity for the euro area that makes the euro area even more resilient, that would be a channel through which you could see the euro becoming even more important. In the case of China, they would have to move to a system of Know, far more open capital markets, stronger financial institutional architecture,
1: all of those. Those are the kinds of big changes that can have an impact. Digital currencies, Bitcoin in particular, have become more than a hot topic. They are touted by many as the most viable option for a more decentralized, autonomous approach to money. What are your views on public and central bank-backed digital currencies?
0: A question that has come up recently was the question of whether Now the new technologies that we have, the technology that can go behind digital currencies, digital payment methods, whether that can be the trigger that generates the move away from the dollar. You might be willing to try to move between different payment technologies, but I don't think the world is just ready yet to transfer across currency. So if you were previously using the dollar very heavily, will you now suddenly start using some other currency because of a different technology? That's because the currency that you use has a lot to do with trust, with stability, with whether it preserves its value. Uh, And an example of this, for instance, is what happened during the Lehman crisis. It was a crisis that originated in the U.S., but the dollar strengthened right after. So you can see how... The dollar can be very attractive as a currency to, to save in because it
1: gains in value during uh, difficult times. According to a report released in 2020 by the Bank for International Settlements entitled Rise of Central Bank Digital Currencies, at least 80 different central banks are currently experimenting with cryptocurrencies. Questions of volatility aside, what do you attribute this rise to? There
0: are many central banks who are exploring And the options of uh, a central bank digital currency, the question is why? And again, that's going to be very country-specific. There are some countries like Sweden where people have almost stopped using cash. Uh, And so then the question is, in that world, what is central bank money? Right. You don't want the payment system to be so much in the private sector that it lacks competition, and then has monopoly power, and then it's not providing enough financial inclusion, and maybe the public sector should be the one playing that role. So that can be another concern. There are concerns about if the central bank starts doing this, is it going to then disintermediate the banking sector? Is it going to end up with some countries with currencies getting substituted out because now they can he- hold a digital dollar? So all of these concerns exist. It's not a simple answer. But I think what central banks are recognizing that given how financial technology is developing, there is a possibility that we will be in a world where nobody uses cash anymore. And in that case,
1: what exactly would central bank money be? In your role as the IMF's chief economist, you've been called the new economic growth genius. That's quite a nickname. What are some of the learnings or focuses in your own work that have led to this kind of praise?
0: Oh, yeah. I'm always flattered with with such headlines. As chief economists, we're all dealing with the same kinds of issues, and, and forecasting is inherently a tricky business. I think the point to keep in mind is that the times have changed compared to the past, where advanced economies made up the biggest fraction of world GDP. Now, emerging and developing economies make up over 60% of world GDP. Uh, and so what that means then is... The kinds of policies that we think about, the implications of what happens in China and for the rest of the world, for what happens in India, for the rest of the world, is becoming far more now an emerging market-driven story. How do you continue to raise income levels, improve livelihoods of people in your economy, in, while at the same time not creating increased inequality, increased polarization in society? That's one goal for sustainable growth. Another goal is how do you generate uh, higher incomes but without generating the kind of climate distress that it has created very recently in the last couple of years we have seen a big rise in social unrest for many multiple different reasons how do we ensure that people benefit from the new kinds of uh, economic growth opportunities that exist how Do more people benefit from it than have benefited uh, in the past? Sustainable also includes how do we get people who have otherwise not been participants in the global economy, like women, how do we get them to play a bigger role
1: in certain parts of the world? I think all of this is important for sustainability. It is true that certain countries have benefited hugely from globalization, while others have suffered. But overall, international trade and open markets are generally accepted as positive things. Working on stronger domestic policies and better interoperation between countries are the areas Gopinath believes need more attention. Because there are some issues that are undeniably multilateral.
0: The global trading system was moving towards much greater integration, much lower tariffs around the world. And for the first time, we saw a reversal in that, uh, which is countries stepping back, unsure about the gains from international trade. I mean, the US-China, of course, is the most prominent case, but you see that in many other countries in the world. The last several decades of bringing tariffs down and greater trade integration has, on average, helped the world, has been a positive for the world. Poorer economies have had access to much bigger markets and they've been able to grow and raise people out of poverty. So there's been a big plus. But it was always known that trade would create winners and losers. The assumption was that domestic policies would do the right thing to fix these uh, inequalities. And that's where policies failed. I think there is now a deeper recognition that the people who don't gain from international trade will not automatically move to some other region and look for other jobs. Mobility is much slower than we thought. Uh, That it's very important to provide opportunities uh, at the local level. It's very important to provide opportunities in health and education. So these things have to be addressed uh, using domestic policies, Uh, because without that, you're going to have different communities who are going to be very disillusioned with the the international trading system. In some parts of the world, people think of globalization as having been a bad thing for them because they've lost jobs. Uh, While in other parts of the world, and especially in the poorer parts of the world, globalization, international trade has really benefited them because their incomes have gone up. So the same policy can have very different implications for different parts of the world. I don't think any government can ignore Uh, these different aspects of, of development anymore when it comes to globalization when it comes to automation when it comes to climate change of course every country's problems are not the same but there are some issues that are truly multilateral and I would say climate is a big part of that international trade is a big part of that so these are kinds of issues that countries will have to work multilaterally on
1: Join us next week where we'll explore whether television can help the fight against poverty Women in Economics is brought to you by UBS and the Center for Economic Policy Research, CEPR. It's hosted by me, Carly Sheridan, produced and sound engineered by Zoo Agency Berlin, with music provided by Artlist. Help us usher in this new era of economics by sharing the episode with a friend, relative, or colleague, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The featured persons and the Center for Economic Policy Research are not affiliated with UBS. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS. UBS does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented.